Let's read together from God's Word. We're turning to Paul's letter to Titus, one of the last of his letters to Timothy was the very last. Titus uh, getting near uh, the end of Paul's missionary career. Paul is helping to encourage and to prepare Titus for his ministry on Crete. Titus chapter 2, and we're reading from the first verse. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. and everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. As Christians, aren't we often painfully aware of the the prevalence of sin in society around us? You don't have to look far. Uh, It is there. You just have to listen to a news bulletin, pick, pick up a newspaper... There's evidence of the sinful heart of men and women. And we're so conscious of people going on in sin with no thought for God. That's not only on the news, of course, entertainment, social media, so much uh, that can be used. Yes, it can be used for good, praise the Lord, but it can be used also to spread evil. The sinful heart of man. But of course, worse than that, surely, is the awareness of the sin that remains in our own hearts. Dangerously easy to see all the sins out there in others and neglect the fact that there's sin that remains in our own hearts. Puritans used to 
talk and write about besetting sins, sins that seem to be encamped around us, and isn't that true? And with that consciousness of sin, there comes also a danger that we become accustomed to sin. Do you ever find that there are things you read about or hear about uh, that once would have shocked you uh, and weighed on you, and now we just shrug our shoulders and say, that's the way the world is. We can become accustomed to sin. If we're not careful, we can become hardened to it. We can easily settle down with sin and not see it as it really is. And so today, as we're getting towards the end uh, of our spiritual checkup, God willing, there'll be one more uh, next Lord's Day. But now, number eight, do you grieve over sin? Do you grieve over sin? You see, sin around you in society and you're conscious of it in your own heart, what's your reaction to it? Do you grieve over sin? This is one very clear mark of grace in the life of a person, that sin isn't a matter of indifference. And as we think of that question, do you grieve over sin, we begin first of all with the holiness of God. The holiness of God. We're not starting with ourselves, we're starting with God. It's fundamental to God's revelation of himself in Scripture is his holiness. You could almost open your Bible at random and you wouldn't read for very long until you find a reference to the holiness of God. Think of one of the great cries in Scripture in Isaiah 6 and verse 3, the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And three times they say holy. Three times to emphasize the, the fullness and the perfection of God's holiness. Once isn't enough. Three times holy, holy, holy. But what is Holiness. It's a word maybe we think we know until perhaps you might be asked to say, well, what is it? What is the holiness of God? What do we mean when we say God is holy? The basic meaning of holiness is separation. If you keep that in mind, you'll not go far wrong. Holiness in Bible language really means separation. As the creator, God is separate from all created things, all finite things, everything that he has made. He's separate from them. He's sovereign over them. The great division in the whole universe is the creator and the creation. He's separate. He is holy in that sense. But that then, of course, leads us on to think of what we could call God's moral holiness. He's separate from everything that's contrary to his holy nature. There's a holy God and there's everyone else. 
He's separate from all sin. That's what we find expressed in a verse like Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Very powerful statement of the holiness of God, his separation from all sin. So when we say that God is holy, we mean he's separate, separate from created things and separate from everything that's contrary to his wonderful, beautiful, holy nature. But what does holiness look like? It can sound very abstract, very theoretical. The holiness of God was a big thing, but what does it look like? And the holiness of God has been made visible. Above all, it's been made visible in human form in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Son of God incarnate, we see what holiness looks like in a human life. He is, as Peter puts it, 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish or defect. So to know what holiness is, to know what it looks like and sounds like, you should listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. You should watch the Lord Jesus Christ as we have the record in the Gospels. That's what holiness looks like. That's the very holiness of God. So God is holy. And we see it in Christ And as image bearers of a holy God, we are to be holy people. We find that call all through Scripture. And the goal of salvation is the restoration of the image of God that was lost way back in Eden, in Adam. The image is marred and twisted and spoiled in us. And in salvation, God is restoring that image, that likeness to him. And so holiness is crucial for Christians. This isn't some relatively unimportant thing. Holiness is vital to the people of God. The holiness of God, that's where we have to start. There's the, the standard set. But now secondly, as we come to think of ourselves we consider the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification. Now, we've touched on the goal of salvation. What is God doing when he saves sinners like you and me? Well, Titus 2.14, that we read a few minutes ago, says this. It tells us that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That gets us right to the heart of what the Lord is going to do in us when he saves us. He redeems us from all wickedness and he's purifying us. We're to be a people eager to do what is good. And that's why holiness is central to Christian living. 
There are many things about the Christian life that we could consider, and we've done that in our spiritual checkup. Here is one that is crucial, that is vital. The Lord saves us to make us holy people. And so we're speaking of sanctification. Big word, but an important word. And sanctification is simply making holy. Making holy. And there are two aspects of sanctification that we find in the Bible that as Christians we need to understand. Two aspects of sanctification, of being made holy. And the first is what we could call definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification. What do we mean by that? Well, when we are born again, when we are brought to Christ and are saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, we enter into a new life. We're born again. And when we enter that new life at conversion, the dominion of sin is broken in our hearts and lives forever. There is a once for all breaking of the dominion of sin that has held us a prisoner, that's kept us in its grip since we were born. And at conversion, once for all, the dominion of sin is broken. And the prison door is thrown open. We're set free from the dominating power of sin. Instead of being under the dominion of sin, we are under the dominion of Christ. That's how we're to understand uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. Now, the first you were washed, we can understand that. Our sins were washed away when we were converted, but you were sanctified. Past tense. Why do we understand that? This is how we understand it. The dominion of sin is broken once for all. And so we can say of every Christian, you were sanctified. The power that held you no longer holds you. And so we have the assurance of a verse like Romans 6 and verse 14. Sin shall not be your master. Sin shall not be your master. And among other things, that is a wonderful promise. The Lord tells his people, sin will not be your master. The fatal blow has been struck. The decisive victory over sin was won at conversion. It's no longer the power that dominates your life. That's good news. That's wonderful news. That should lift you and encourage you. As you struggle with temptation and sin, ultimately sin will never be your master again. 
And that is God's promise. And that cannot fail. So there is definitive sanctification. The dominion of sin is broken at conversion. Good news. Great encouragement for the Christian. But then, of course, you may well say to me, but look, I still sin. I still do what is wrong. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does that mean I'm, I'm not converted? You've just said the dominion of sin is broken, but I still sin. What's wrong? And that brings us to the second aspect of sanctification. And that we could call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Building on the victory of definitive sanctification when you're converted and the dominion of sin was broken, the Holy Spirit gradually remakes each Christian in his heart and life so that we reflect the likeness, the holy likeness of our Savior. So the dominion is broken when you're converted And then step by step, in your daily living, in your daily experience, the Lord makes you a holy person. Progressive sanctification. And that's what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. He says, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. So the dominion of sin is broken. And then day by day, as the Spirit works in us, we are being transformed. A transformation that won't be complete until the Lord takes us to glory. We are being transformed. And we are called to be active in this work. You see, we speak about justification. We're made right with God. There's nothing you can contribute to your justification, it's God's work. We talk about adoption. You may remember these from your, your catechism. Adoption, we are made children of God, and there's nothing you can contribute to adoption. Justification, adoption, they are entirely the work of God. But when we come to sanctification, The Bible calls us and commands us to be active. There are some varieties of supposed Christian teaching that would suggest, well, to be sanctified, you sit back and God does it. Some would say, let go and let God. That's not what the Bible says. We have commands in Scripture, 1 Peter 1.15, Just as he who called you is holy, 
So be holy in all you do. That's a command. That's not telling you this is something God will do and you just wait for him to bring it to pass. We are called to be active. Now, yes, it is by the power of God. As we use the means of grace, we read our Bibles, we spend time in prayer, we meet for worship. And as the Holy Spirit blesses those things, we will grow in grace. And it's the Lord's strength we use. But we use it. The Holy Spirit doesn't read the Bible for us. He doesn't say our prayers for us. We must do these things. He will enable us. He'll give us the strength. But we must do them. So we're not to be passive. We're not to sit back. And if we are, if we say, oh, God will do it. God will make me holy. Don't be surprised if you never really make much progress in the Christian life. If you're always struggling with with sin and you're always failing, don't be surprised if you're sitting waiting for God to do it. Because he tells you, he commands you, and he requires you to be active and use the means of grace that he's put in your hands. We are to be active. Now, the secret of growing is always because it's God's work. Philippians 2.13. Both are there. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's our activity. And then Paul goes on, because it's God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. You've got to will. You've got to do. But it's by God's enabling. There's always that biblical balance we're trying to maintain. That sanctification is by the power of God. But we are called to use the means he gives us. And if we don't, we will not grow And we will not be holy people. And so we think of the holiness of God. We think of the process of sanctification. We need to think thirdly of the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. And that takes us back really to where we started. How dangerously easy it is to become accustomed to sin, almost to make our peace with it. You know, we hear, don't we, at the moment about, we'll probably have to learn to live with the coronavirus. It's always going to be there, and we just kind of figure a way to live with it. And maybe that's necessary, and it's doubtful who knows the answer. But spiritually, we can learn to live with sin and settle down with it to a degree. Those of you who are older might remember uh, in this province in the days of the Troubles, there was a, a Secretary of State who commented on an acceptable level of violence. And we know what we thought of that. 
But is there for some Christians an acceptable level of sin? That you're not perfect, but you can live with certain sins and certain weaknesses. And we don't see it as God sees it. We're not to allow our attitudes to be shaped by the world's thinking. The many things that Christians believe are sin, the world is baffled. What's wrong with that? What are you getting so worked up about this or that lifestyle? And so our attitudes to sin can be blunted. We don't perceive sin as serious. And of course our culture trivializes sin, doesn't it? But we need to see sin as God, the holy God, sees it. As the Bible describes it. A mark of grace in a Christian is a holy hatred of sin. Reflecting the Lord's hatred of sin. We quoted Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on sin. And something of that should be seen in God's people. We should be able to say with the psalmist, Psalm 97.10, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Or again, Psalm 119 Verse 104, I hate every wrong path. And of course, Christ is our example, as we've said. He's our pattern. And we need to see sin as fundamentally against God. Against you, you only have I sinned, Psalm 51. Of course, he'd sinned against people, but he'd sin primarily against God. And that is true repentance. You see, it's possible to weep over your faults and your failings and your sins. People do. And they regret having hurt others or hurt themselves and messed up their own lives. But unless they understand what they've done is against God, It isn't really repentance. And there are those who will grieve over what they've done time and time and time and time again. And maybe their whole life becomes one of of regret. But they never get out of that because they never see what they've done as a sin against God. And so they follow the path of forgiveness and salvation that God has provided. They just go round and round and round. And what they've done wrong. And they'll never break out of it until they see sin as God sees it. And they turn to him and sorrow before him for their sin. We are to grieve over sin. Above all because God is offended. We're to grieve over the sin we see in the world around us. When we know how it offends God and how it ruins lives, we should grieve over sin, lives that are destroyed by sinful patterns of behavior. Can we say with the psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse 136, 
streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Do we have that response when we see sin in the world around us? Or do we find ourselves perhaps saying, well, what do you expect? That sinner's for you. Does it grieve us? Does it grieve us that God is offended and lives are being ruined all around us? Do we grieve? It should fuel our witness as we understand the plight of sinners. Uh, and we have folk from time to time, and we've had them in our outreach. And you listen to them and you look at them. And you can't be unmoved to see how they're destroying themselves and they're offending God. And yet they may not have the slightest inclination to change. And there's a place for prayer for divine judgment on those who will not repent. Yes, we long to see sinners converted. But there are prayers in Scripture that sometimes it is appropriate to pray for the judgment of God on the unrepentant who defy God and they deserve judgment. We grieve over sin we see in the world. We grieve over sin we see in fellow believers, don't we? Chiefly because God's dishonored by the sins of professing Christians should lead us not to self-righteousness, how easy it is to look down on others and think, well, I don't do that, and I don't live like that, and I didn't make that mistake. We grieve over the sins of fellow believers. We humbly, when we have opportunity, seek to restore them and lead them in the right path. Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. No place for self-righteous condemnation. It's a caricature, but not a complete caricature. When it's said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. But sometimes it does. Rather than seeking to restore and grieving over the wounds. We grieve over the sin we see in the world. We grieve over the sin we see in fellow believers. But chiefly we're to grieve over the sin we see in our own hearts. And then the sins of the world and of fellow believers should fade into the background. And that's how we have sinned. We realize how far short we fall of God's perfection. We grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That's the wonderful thing about belonging to Christ. That when we realize our sin and when we grieve over what we have done in offending the Lord, there's always an answer. There's always a solution. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10 of godly sorrow that brings repentance. And that's what we seek. Yes, we grieve over our sin, but we repent. And we call out to God for forgiveness 
for restoration. We flee to a gracious God who restores and who cleanses the repentant. And that should infuse our whole Christian life, repentance. Martin Luther in the first of his 95 theses that were nailed up on the castle door at Wittenberg and commemorated in this Reformation Sunday as many observe it. The first of them was that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Some think, well, surely if you're a Christian you're saved, you don't need to repent. But if you offend a loving parent, you come and seek forgiveness and restoration. You're not put out of the family, but you've lost that sense of their, their love, their affection. And so with God, when you realize you've offended him, you come quickly to seek forgiveness and restoration to fellowship. When we grieve over sin as Christians, the solution to that grief is always ready to hand. We do not despair. We do not sorrow as those who have no hope to borrow Paul's words. The answer is always there. Repent and be restored and enjoy the smile of God once again. The seriousness of sin is not trivial. We must never, we can never say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven. My sin doesn't matter. You haven't understood sin or salvation if you say that. We grieve over the sin of the world, the sin of fellow believers, but above all, our own sin. And quickly, we have it dealt with by the grace of God. The holiness of God. The process of sanctification, the seriousness of sin, and then, in a word, the prospect of perfection. The prospect of perfection. Surely an awareness of our sin and our failure leads us to long to be free of all sin, to long for perfection. Don't you long for the day when you won't sin anymore, when you won't even be tempted, and there won't be a possibility of falling? We long for that, and it's right that we long for that. It is a good sign if we long for that. And it's a longing that will be satisfied. There are longings in life that will never be satisfied. You know that. But here's a longing that will be satisfied. That the day of perfection will come. Because it's God's work and it won't fail. And so Paul can write in Philippians 1.6 that God will carry his work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When the Lord appears in glory... The work and body as well as soul will be complete. We will be like Christ. We'll be like him as John writes in 1 John 3. Two. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Isn't that a wonderful prospect. And we'll be thinking more of that uh, final hope of glory, God willing, next week. When we grieve over sin, 
when we understand how far short we still fall, we long for perfection. And it will come. And that certainty that will come, one day we will be perfect, doesn't make us careless. We don't say, well, I'll be perfect when Christ comes back, so it doesn't matter what I do today. No, that stirs a deeper grief over sin. This Lord has done all for our salvation, and we sin and we despise it. That should grieve us. And it should lead us to quicker repentance and a greater longing for perfection. We'll be asking next week, do you long for glory? Do you? And do you grieve over sin while you're still in this life and this world? There's a mark of God's grace in your heart if you do grieve over sin. Not as somebody who's no hope, but as a believer who comes to the Lord and receives renewed forgiveness and cleansing and restoration to fellowship. May we be those who grieve over sin and quickly come to the Lord and receive forgiveness.